itself gives up contagion to this world. Hello, everyone, and hello from the other side to you, Johanna. Hello from the other side to you, Linnea. Are you on the other side? I'm on the other side. Yes, I think we have a bear. Can we? Can our fingers touch? Almost barely. If I, I if I if I really strain, I will probably be able to. But if you like me enough. Yeah, I guess that's the gist of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, how has your week been? It's been good. It's been pretty slow and fast at the same time. Kind of like when time evaporates. Don't sort of like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. A lot of dogs. and uh, How many dogs have we had this week? Hmm. Six different ones, I think. Wait, what? Have you started taking on dogs that I've never met? No, sorry. Five. I have four regulars and I have a fifth one that I fired. <laughs> four regulars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I had to fire a dog this week, which was uh, new. But um, That text message was, it's it's you it's not me (laughs) yeah no i've never had to do that before and it felt like shit but um sometimes you just gotta fucking take care of yourself before you take care of other people other people's dogs at least yeah yeah no i i remember i remember that because it was two days ago (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it was fucking awful because this dog was why is this is not interesting this is not uh, no it's well it's interesting we can talk about this after but for people listening it's absolutely not interesting yeah (laughs) but you're alive and you're well and you did make the right choice i think yeah i hope so it felt shitty at the moment but i'm glad i did it yeah i'm glad too because you seem it felt like it relaxed you i felt truly a relief afterwards because i also realized how anxious i had been to get requests yeah from this dog (laughs) (laughs) i can see him texting you (laughs) i told a friend that i've been avoiding the dog and she thought like in the house (laughs) i've just been like creeping against the walls (laughs) fuck he saw me and how many rooms you have three rooms here yeah so if you stand really, and that's really including still. the bathroom. <laughs> but okay, silly dogs aside. Yeah, how I, you doing? I'm good. I saw the. I'm gonna bring it up again because it's unforgivable. But I saw the entire finished Aladdin trailer this week. I saw it too. I was wondering what you thought about it. What does my face say? <laughs> still, I thought it was at least a step up from the first. It was absolutely a step up. But that step is not a full step. Okay. Why? Okay. You want Let's my go list? there. <laughs> Will Smith is not the right choice. They should have chosen Robin Williams. Because the only thing... Robin Williams is dead, sweetie. I mean, not Robin Williams. Sorry, Jack Black. Oh, yeah. Because Jack Black has the same humor yeah. that Robin Williams had, who was the original genie. And the only thing the only thing you see when you see Will Smith as the genie is, it's Will Smith Blue. Yeah. He's a blueberry. What? And... It's just really, really awkward CGI. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's swole. Yeah, I think they added some abs. It looks hmm. like they added abs. But then again, Will Smith is fit, probably. But They should still. have subtracted the abs. Exactly. The thing is that the genie is supposed to be crazy. Mm. He's not supposed to be cocky funny. He's just supposed to be stupid funny. Mm. And Aladdin has a stupid face. It's just like a flat, stupid face that's completely... You can't read anything there. It's just, complete, it's just completely vacant, vacant all the time. You want it to be more expressive. Yeah. And then Jafar is just... 
Get far. Get far. Get me the lamp. <laughs> get me the get me the lamp, please. It's just he's just too weak. And then uh Nahum, I think her name is Naomi Scott as Jasmine. I I've liked everything that I've seen, but I don't like her singing voice because it's really strained. Uh-huh. And then um, I'm excited. It's very Ridley Scott. It's very Ridley Scott with like the uh, extreme um, chase scenes, and then they slow it down, and then extreme. Uh. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. Uh, this is very uninteresting <laughs> for everyone listening. I'm so well, sorry. There are a lot of people who like Disney, and I mean, can't kind of get away from the inspiration or cover art either. It's Disney esque. Yeah. Well, anyways, we have a little bit of a we have a different type of episode today we do how would you describe it i would describe it as you did all the work (laughs) that's not what i meant (laughs) i mean that is the gist of it though i thought that you were gonna like come come have a really good name for like story time or ear holes open for one no i think it's basically we decided that you would be telling us the story today because it's something that you have been interested in and very well informed of since you were very little and then in the future i'll take on one of those myself yes because <laughs> you've had a lot of things that you delved really deep into yeah. and uh, just burned your little nose your sooty nose <laughs> into yeah. them yeah totally so, and the thing is i don't know what you're gonna choose so i'm really excited about that yeah, yeah. i have some ideas but we'll see <laughs> well okay i'll just start with my text then i guess yeah roll into that go for it yeah so you ready to rock i'm ready to rock i'm nervous but i'm happy Woo, we're gonna roll then <laughs> and rock. i hope you don't mind me using the babe here as bait quite a dish isn't she but that's what she gets paid for bait that is yes sir. okay so when i was five years old i remember my mom discussing something about going to the movies with a friend and I, as a very curious child, wanted to know what the well, what the movie's name was, mm-hmm. and she told me, and I asked her what it was about, and she didn't really want to explain it to me, mm. so she was a mysterious mother, and just wandered out of the room. Erotic film. <laughs> she was going to the erotica theater. <laughs> the sticky seats in there, next to Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so the following year, I was six years old, and my parents invited some of their friends to come over for a movie night. The good old times, you know? Since the same movie that my mom had seen the previous year uh, had now been released on VHS. Oh, nice. (laughs) Good times. And then we kids weren't allowed to watch the movie, so they just set us up with a bunch of chips and soda and put on another movie, a safer movie, in the playroom. But I could still hear what was going on in the living room. So I sat myself in the hallway just so that I could listen clearly without them knowing I was there. When my curiosity no longer could keep me from the room, I tiptoed in and sat myself in my dad's lap. I was so affected by what was happening on screen, but I was too scared to watch. So I sat with my back against the TV and my head resting on my dad's shoulder, and every now and again I would peek back to see what was happening. And I remember seeing water, night waves, and people frantically running around. And I remember a ship. Mm -hmm. And from that day on, I would have an obsession with the Titanic and its fate like nothing I've ever been obsessed about since then. And we can probably question my parents' judgment for letting me watch a rated R film as a quite small child and later fueling my obsession with, uh, yeah, they got me my own Titanic VHS, which went on repeat and it had the two cassettes like I told you about later. And I got a Titanic shirt. We, I need to find that photo again. Oh, <laughs> It's like a class photo. And there I am in the first row with a Titanic shirt. 
<laughs> strange <And> girlhood. <laughs> and they got me this ginormous, like, 1,000 or 2,000 piece Titanic uh, puzzle. Wow. And a bunch of Titanic books, some of which I've used for today's research. Cool. And one of them I, I showed you now before. So when we decided to do this podcast, I knew that I've known a lot of things that, like I say, every episode, I want to do Victorians. I want to do sweet flowers lips. It's my only passion. But <laughs> this is this is the absolute top. Yeah, this is what started it. <laughs> yeah, this is actually, it's exactly what started my obsession with, I would say, the terrible things in life, or yeah. like the macabre, I would say. So I knew that one episode had to discuss the Titanic and, and her fate because it's a story that's almost too unbelievable and almost greater than fiction. Yeah. And James Cameron, who later directed the, the film Titanic in 1997, said this about the ship. Titanic has captured our imaginations after hundreds of years because her story is like a great novel. The story could not be written better had it been fiction. The biggest ship in history, on her maiden voyage, filled with the wealthy and elite of two continents, runs smack into a lone iceberg that lies in wait for her, and is swallowed by the black ocean, leaving nothing behind. He continues and says, The juxtaposition of rich and poor, the generals played out into death, the stoicism and nobility of a bygone age, the magnificence of the great ship matched in scale by the folly of men who drove her hellbent through darkness. And I can only agree, it's just too unbelievable, really. It, yeah. I get why they made a movie out of it. Yeah, you don't really have to add much. No, really. That is the thing. Except for the core story between Jack and Rose, pretty much everything was what happened. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, James Cameron is probably one of the most obsessed Titanic fanatics in the world. Really? Yeah, he had studied it. He had studied it for years before. Can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. Do you know if like this widespread Titanic notion was as widespread before the movie came out it's had um i think the first film was actually released some weeks after the titanic was actually okay yeah, so it was already with one of the survivors who was the actress wow yeah so it has i think they say because i read about this and i think it's had like three revivals yeah and naturally the 1997 film was one of them mm. but it's just like it's been a wave yeah so it's not down, james cameron down. was like this story that no one knows about yeah did you guys know and they're like no what yeah. which part is that <laughs> i don't know what that was <laughs> what's <laughs> what's crazy <laughs> no so it's it's gone up and down yeah but it's definitely been a story told oh yes several yeah. times and it has i think they did a mini series not that long ago as well hmm. yeah but it didn't like re stoke or whatever you call it uh revamp no rekindle rekindle the yeah the fascination at all yeah what I wanted to do today, I guess, <laughs> uh, is that I wanted to tell the Titanic story and the stories about the people who were on the ship and who lost their lives because there are a lot of people that don't know that the Titanic was actually real. Yeah. Which is insane. insane. Yeah. And she's still out there lying on the Atlantic Ocean floor at this moment. Uh, over 100 years later. Yeah. And she isn't just a movie. She was real. She was a real ship that sank. And when she sank, she took with her over 1,500 lives. And history is so important to talk about and discuss because the last survivor of the Titanic died in 2009. Really? Yeah. So who's going to tell the story if not, you know? The rest uh, of us. Yeah, the yeah. rest of us. And especially people who have like a podcast or a TV show or whatever, we need to talk about these things because yeah. they might be forgotten. Just the fact that people don't know the Titanic existed. Why are schools failing us? <laughs> <laughs> Truly. <laughs> so let's start talking about the ship. 
And I'm going to be really, really focused. I'm not going to take in like the peripheral things going on or anything. I'm going to look at the ship mm. and pretty much cut it off after the... That was not appropriate term either. <laughs> that was not a pun Knowing intended. what is about to happen. <laughs> no, but it's going to be very focused on the incident. I'm just going to start talking. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I trust this. I'm so happy <laughs> that you're doing this. Okay, so the ship. The story of the Titanic began with an idea. An idea to create the world's largest and most luxurious ship that ever sailed. The name Titanic derives from the Titans, which were a race of deities featured in Greek mythology. This name fits well since the Titanic was at the time the biggest ship in the world. Built in Belfast, Ireland, she was the second of three triplet sisters, almost all identical, called the Olympic-class ocean liners. The first was the RMS Olympic, the second was the RMS Titanic, and the third was the HMHS Britannic. I don't know what that means, mm-hmm. but acronyms. Sure. <laughs> These ships were ordered by the shipping company White Star in response to their largest rival, Cunard, which had recently launched the two fastest ships of the time, and they also had two German rivals who were on fire. Mm. Mm-hmm. So White Star decided to compete on size rather than speed, and the idea of commissioning a new class of the largest liners ever built was proposed. Not only would these ships be the largest the world had ever seen, but they would be the height of luxury and comfort as well. The ships would be pretty much floating palaces. Yeah. So we're going to be throwing some numbers now. All right. A little dimension shit. Sure. <laughs> so on the 2nd of April, 1912, when the ship stood completed, she was 82.5 feet, which is 200. 169 meters long okay from from the back to the front from the stern to the bow yes Uh, both terms good job i'm gonna go through them later (laughs) (laughs) and it was 92.5 feet slash 28 meters wide so it's not that big for today's standard no no and it was standing at 10 decks eight for passenger use and had a max capacity of 3547 people at one time and her average speed was at 21 knots Today, the world's largest passenger ship is, it sounds like a Disney movie, Symphony of the Seas, mm-hmm, which is 1,184 feet long, about 361 meters, and she has a max capacity of 6,680 passengers, as well as a 2,200 person crew. Wow. She's 18 decks high and goes on an average of 22 knots. So it's an island basically yeah it and has like an amusement park and Fuck. yeah it's just completely insane and uh, if you google it it has like, it's like a party boat with strobe lights i sound so old you know <laughs> with them disco kids <laughs> okay so many people have seen the film titanic but i feel like i need to describe sort of put forth the opulence of the ship and it's just over the top facilities mm. which is insane now when we're talking about amusement parks on a ship but True, this was but insane this for the time 1912 yes and also i think it's important to understand sort of the blueprint of the ship since that plays an immense role in what comes later okay so we're this might not be fun but it's important and we're gonna go from top deck to bottom deck okay got it so first we had the boat deck this is where lifeboats were housed this is at the very top okay it was from here during the early hours of the 15th of april 1912 that titanic's lifeboats were lowered into the night the bridge and wheelhouse were at the forward end called the bow and the bow is the front and the stern is the back of the ship mm. so think that you bow forward got it okay. yeah i made that up nice yeah all right <laughs> And this is also where the captain and officers also had their quarters. On this deck were also the entrance to the infamous first-class grand staircase, gymnasium, and the first-class smoking room. 
The wood-covered deck was divided into four segregated promenades, one for officers, one for first-class passengers, one for engineers, and one for second-class passengers. Because God forbid should they see each other. Never. Never. Dirty. <laughs> Vermin. Yes. Lifeboats lined almost the entire deck, except for in the first-class area where there was a gap. So that the view would not be spoiled. Of course. Yes, naturally. In total, there were two wooden cutters with a capacity of 40 people each. Mm. 14 wooden lifeboats with a capacity of 65 people each. Four folding lifeboats are also known as collapsibles with a capacity of 47 people in mm. each. These were to accommodate in total 1,178 people. Yeah, that math doesn't work. But at the time of the collision, there were 2,222 people on the ship. And the thing is that there was enough room on the Titanic for up to 64 lifeboats, which would have sent the maximum capacity to 3,547. So they they chose aesthetics. Yeah, they really did. Yeah. The thing is that people would have died despite having enough lifeboats. Yeah, but a lot fewer. A lot, a lot, a lot fewer. But a lot of people would have still died. Uh, and I'm going to get to that later. Sure. And then we're going to go down a deck, also known as the promenade deck, which extended along the ship, reserved exclusively for first-class passengers. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> Contained first-class cabins, the first-class lounge, smoke room, reading and writing rooms, and the palm court, which was this amazing, it was this amazingly beautiful lounge room with cane furniture, white and brick-colored tiled floors, mm. large mirrors and windows overlooking the vast ocean and trellis decor. It was just so pretty. And they have it in the movie, and it is really one of the most beautiful rooms. And then we're going to go down the deck, and that is the bridge deck, also known as the B deck, which was the uppermost level of the hull. The hull is the lower part of the ship. More first-class passenger accommodations were located here, with six palatial staterooms featuring their own private promenades. The cafe, well, and restaurant a la carte, and the Café Parisien <laughs> were located here and provided luxury dining facilities for the first-class passengers. And then the, the second-class smoking room and entrance hall were also located on the, this deck. Towards the stern, which was that? It was the back. Yeah, the butt. <laughs> Towards the stern of the ship, of the bridge, and the raised poop deck, which was used as a promenade by third-class passengers. It was here that many Titanic's passengers and crew made their last stand on the ship. The night it sank. Yeah, if that wasn't clear. <laughs> yeah. People. Okay, then we have the sea deck, also known as the shelter deck, which was the highest deck to run uninterrupted from stem to stern. Here was the third class promenade, and on either ends were the crew cabins and third class public rooms. And in between were the majority of first class cabins and also the second class library. Now we have D deck, also known as the saloon deck, which was dominated by three large public rooms, the first class reception room, the first class dining saloon, and the second class dining saloon. Mm. Saloon is a difficult word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The first class saloon at the time was the largest room on any ship ever built and could seat 500 people at one time. Wow. Mm -hmm. There was also an open space provided for third class passengers. Not in, not in the same place. Of course Naturally. not. Naturally. <laughs> no, 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 no. And there were also first, second, and third class cabins for the passengers on the stick as well. Mm. Okay. We don't got a lot of decks left now. Okay? okay. So we have the E deck, which is the upper deck and was predominantly used for passenger accommodations for all three classes, plus berths for cooks, seamen, stewards, and trimmers. Along its length ran a long passageway nicknamed Scotland Road, which was used by third class passengers and crew members. Now, we're getting to F deck. And this was the last complete deck and mainly accommodated second and third class passengers in several departments of the crew. The third class dining room saloon was also located here, as were the swimming pool, 
<laughs> the Turkish bath and kennels. Because, yes, there were animals on the Titanic. Shit. Yeah. Now, I just need to say this because the animals of the Titanic are so greatly overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. So, roughly 12 dogs, four hens, numerous roosters, one yellow canary, and the ship's rat catcher, Cat Jenny, no. were on board. Not all these were in the kennels, though. It's not entirely known how many woofers survived, but three are known. I love this. Okay. (laughs) And I'm going to talk about them now. So we have Lady, who was a Pomeranian. As the owner of Lady stepped into a lifeboat, cradling her, another passenger reportedly passed by and joked, Oh, I suppose we ought to put a life preserve on the little doggies as well. And yes, rightly so, good sir. And then another Pomeranian survived, whose name isn't known. The owner of the woofer, Elizabeth Jane Ann Rothschild, kept the dog hidden when she climbed into a lifeboat. No one else on the lifeboat remembered seeing the dog until the next morning. I love that. She yeah. smuggled her little pooch. Yes. The love of dog. I know. Dogs transcends time and place. I just need to I'm having that. chills. Just, oh, God. Mm-hmm. Lastly, we have ya- we have Sun Yat-sen, mm? a Pekingese owned by Henry S. Harper, heir to New York's Harper and Row publishing firm. A Pekingese. Yes, and his wife, the other owner, was Minna Harper. Uh, when asked later about saving the dog, Henry Harper explained that there seemed to be lots of room and nobody made an objection. Yeah. So he just, like, brought his puppy. Yeah. Okay, now we have G-Deck and Lower Deck, which was the lowest complete deck that carried passengers and had the lowest portholes just above the waterline. Portholes are windows for for boats. It's the round Mm. things. Got it. (laughs) Made of glass. (laughs) Uh, The squash court was also located here because, you know, you need squash. Yeah, You need squash that shit up. Got a squash on the And there was also a traveling post office where letters and parcels were sorted ready for delivery when the ship docked. Last deck. Okay, I promised last deck. Mm-hmm. Now we have the Orlop decks and the tank top. And these were the lowest lowest levels of the ship. And they were below the water line. And the Orlop decks were used as cargo spaces, while the tank top provided the platform on which the ship's boilers, engines, turbines, and electrical generators were housed. This area of the ship was occupied by the engine and boiler rooms. Okay, time for interior design. Yes. So the Titanic's interior design was absolutely unique for its time, seeing as its predecessors had all typically been decorated in very, like, heavy, almost gaudy style of a manor house or, like, an English country house, which sounds like opposites. Yeah. But that's how it's described. (laughs) Okay, and the Titanic emulated a lighter style, very much like the the then-modern high-class hotel like the Ritz. Just to name one hotel, because I don't know any more hotels at the time. And the entire goal of the interior was that the passengers were to feel like they were in a hotel rather than on a ship. Even the windows in the first class saloon were made to look like they were from the inside of a house and not round portholes. So they were like square from the inside. Wow. And uh, had um, stained glass as well. And among the many fancy and glorious activities the first class passengers could partake in was taking a dip in the seven-foot-deep saltwater pool, going to the gymnasium, playing some squash or sweat-slash-chilling in the Turkish bath, uh, which had an electric bath, steam room, cool room, massage room, and a hot room. Mm. Isn't that what you want right now, girlfriend? It is. I've never said girlfriend in that way before. (laughs) I appreciate it. Girlfriend. And the beautiful folk could lounge in lavishly decorated rooms, very a la Palace Divasherai. Uh, or eat at the earlier mentioned a la carte restaurant for the people who felt that first class just wasn't 
fancy enough. Yeah, of course. And one of Titanic's most distinctive features was her famous first-class staircase, as we mentioned before. Yeah. And it was known as the Grand Staircase or the Grand Stairway. This is where Jack and Rose had their moment. Yeah. And this staircase descended through seven decks of the ship between the boat deck to E deck before tapering into a simplified single flight of stairs onto the F deck. It was capped with a dome of wrought iron and glass that admitted natural warm light into the stairwell. And at the uppermost landing was a large carved wooden panel containing a very glorious clock. Third class accommodations aboard Titanic were naturally not as luxurious as first or second class, but even so they were far better than on many other ships of the time. White Star Line wanted to give all passengers a respectable living during their voyage. Most passenger ships at that time only offered their third-class passengers open dormitories, Mm. uh, where people were packed like sardines, often without adequate food or toilet facilities. On the Titanic, third-class passengers were divided into two sections, one for single men, and the other was for single women, married couples, and families. Third-class passengers were provided with private small cabins, which, yeah. as stated, was really unusual, and they were capable of accommodating two, three, six, eight, or ten passengers. They also had access to their own dining rooms and public gathering areas, deck space, and smoking room for men, and a deck for women. So it wasn't, like, the worst ship ever. No. <laughs> for third-class passengers. It was actually really, really nice. Now we're going to talk about the passengers and the crew. Mm. Mm-hmm. So on her maiden voyage, the Titanic had around 885 crew members on board, and they were led by British Merchant Navy officer Captain Edward John Smith, and he was in no way fresh to the scene, seeing as he'd been master of numerous White Star Line vessels already. Now, the number of passengers varies, which is really strange, but the Titanic had about 1,317 people on board at the time, and these were them passengers. Yeah. So there were 324 people in first class, 284 in second class and 709 in third class yeah and there were 107 children aboard wow Mm -hmm. the largest number of whom were unfortunately in third class Mm. this does make sense seeing as the majority of third class passengers were immigrating to the united states so they were just families wanting to you know start over in america or just it really was the promised land so luckily the ship was under capacity though on her maiden voyage, as she could accommodate 2,453 passengers. And this was due to a national coal strike in the UK, so there was disruption to shipping schedules, and due to this, many chose to postpone travels until the strike was over. Mm. Now, this I didn't know, and I found was really fascinating. So concerning the nationalities on board the Titanic, after American and British passengers, Swedes were the largest population on board. Really? Mm -hmm. Followed by Finns, Norwegians, and Danes. For people who don't know... We're Swedish. We're in Sweden at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. this is your first episode. Yeah. So this was a big thing. And did you know that Swedish was the second most spoken language on the ship? Wow. Yeah. But I know that crew members, there are a lot of Swedish crew members. On the Titanic? Not necessarily. Yeah, because, yeah. But during ships, because. Yeah, during ships. (laughs) (laughs) Because we have Viking blood. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And this is due to the mass migration uh during the time from sweden due to failing crops during the time so in april of 1912 123 swedes chose to migrate to the states and 89 of those swedes did not make it to their destination wow okay so i wanted to introduce you to a set of passengers now i won't tell you their fate just yet so you'll just have to listen and sort of watch as the events play out and for people who know things about Titanic, you might as well know this. I don't know. But these are some famous people that, that it's very um, commonly known that they are dead or mm. alive, uh, if you know the story. 
So first we have John Jacob Jack. Well, they call him Jack. Astor. The fourth. The fourth. The fourth. Mm. <laughs> 47 at the time, who was an American businessman, real estate builder, investor, inventor, and a prominent member of the Astor family. And he did have a mustache. Of course he did. I think everyone during, during the Edwardian era had mustache. Yeah, at least like the older generation of men. Yeah. And Astor was the richest passenger aboard the Armas Titanic and was thought to be among the richest people in the world at the time. Fuck. With a net worth of nearly $87 million, which is equivalent to $2.6 billion in 2018. Jesus Christ. Yeah. He had dough. Fuck tons of it. Yeah. And he was traveling. Why didn't he even, why didn't he build his own boat? I don't know, man. Maybe he wanted the experience. I mean, this was hype. Maybe this was like the Coachella of the day. (laughs) You know? Just like Lady Gaga or Beyonce. (laughs) (laughs) Not like this is, you know, you had to be there because this was a major thing. And showing that you were first class did show people, look at me, I'm taking the Titanic and I'm the first class. I'm going to tell you later how much the first class ticket cost. It's a lot. It's like your firstborn child. Fuck. Yeah. It's more than your firstborn child. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know. (laughs) No. It depends how good the child is. I'm cheap. (laughs) You'll get her for a bargain. I don't have children. I will point that out. I don't want to have children. Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) That fuck had so much judgment. (laughs) Fuck no, man. I don't have children. No, I just mean that it's like if I had kids and I was like, no, I'll sell her for cheap. Yeah, there's not a child sitting in this room listening to her mother talk about selling her. (laughs) Mother, why would you? Okay. And uh, Jack was traveling with his then 19-year-old pregnant wife, Madeline Force Astor, and their very much-loved dog, Kitty. Mm, Kitty. Mm -hmm. And they were traveling back home after their honeymoon so that Madeline could give birth in the States. Mm. We also had the married couple Isidore and Ida Strauss. Isidore Strauss was a German-born Jewish-American businessman, politician, and co-owner of Macy's department store. Yes, Macy's. Oh, fuck. Yeah. A beautiful name at that. Isidore. Oh, I was like, Macy's? No, no, no. Isidore. <laughs> That's like... <laughs> I mean, Macy's is yeah, fine. Yeah, Isidore is gorgeous. Is that, is that your son's name? That does not exist? No. Okay. No, that's true. But it's really, really beautiful. Isidore. And also Ida. Yeah. Isidore and Ida. Uh, well, they were rolling in it. Let's just put it that way. They yeah, were rich. Clearly. Yeah. And they found themselves on the Titanic simply because they were returning home after a winter vacation in Europe. They'd originally planned to return home on a different ship, but switched to the Titanic due to, well, aforementioned coal strike yeah. that caused the coal from other ships to be diverted to the Titanic. Oh. Mm-hmm. And at the time they boarded the Titanic, they were both in their 60s, and they'd had seven children together. So these two couples were naturally in first class. Whilst some decks below, we have Alma Polson in third class with her four children, ages two, three, five, and eight years old. Mm. Alma was married to Nils Polson, a miner working here in Skåne. Following a major strike in Sweden, Nils tired of mining and decided to immigrate to the United States. He soon received his immigration certificate and traveled to Chicago. Here, Nils found a job as a tram conductor and set out to save enough money so that his family could join him. Eventually, he saved enough money and Alma and her four small children left for Southampton, traveling via Malmö in Copenhagen. Hmm. Then, we have the Swedish journalist, typographer, and socialist activist August Wennerström from Malmö, Sweden. By the way, we're in Malmö. Yeah. We, don't, we don't only have one city in Sweden. <laughs> no, 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 but this is where yeah, we are. Yeah, I chose them because they're from where we are. Cool. And after writing an article which was not too appreciated by authorities, he decided it was time for a new start, and he bought his ticket on the RMS Titanic in Copenhagen, and he took himself to Southampton, where he boarded the ship. 
Now, finally, I would like to present Rigel, who was a large black Newfoundland dog. Mm. Now, it's not disputed that Rigel was on board, but it is disputed exactly what happened to him. But I'm going to go with what's like mostly reported. Now, the beloved Rigel was owned by William McMaster Murdoch, who was the first officer of the Titanic. Rigel was kept in the kennels alongside all other woofers. And I'm going to say now that Murdoch, his owner, did die in the sinking. Yeah. So what happened to the woofer? That's more important to mm-hmm. me. That is actually more important. <laughs> <laughs> so here we have Aster, his wife Madeline, Isidore and Ida Strauss, Alma Polson, and her four children, August, Vinström, and Rigel. Eleven lives with entirely different backgrounds who are about to embark on a journey where their fates will be entwined by one disaster. Fucking nicely done. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know why, but you... Okay, so like I said, I was going to talk about the ticket price. A first-class ticket averaged about $150, but went as high as $4,000, which is the equivalent of about $70,000 in modern-day county. Um, that is 600000 kroner. Whoa. And how long was the trip? It was about a week. Fuck. Yeah. But you got a lot of food. First-class passengers received 25 times more meals than third class really yeah so you were gaining weight during this trip yeah i mean i'd expect it <laughs> for I that price. money back if i fucking didn't <laughs> yeah and second class cost about 60 dollars, and third was between 15 to 40 dollars. okay sailing day mm. we're at southampton on the south coast of england now at 9.30 a.m. on the 10th of April, 1912, a beautiful Wednesday morning, passengers began arriving after having traveled by various trains from destinations across England. First aboard were third-class passengers who were inspected for ailments and physical impairments that might lead to them being refused entry to the United States, which would have been extremely embarrassing to White Star Line. Fuck. Yeah. So they walked up the ramps leading to a small door along the Titanic's berth. Here they were met by a man in a blue uniform who checked everyone's tickets and explained directions to each and everyone's living quarters. Following third class were the first and second class passengers. Stewards stood waiting to help them to their cabins personally. And all first class passengers were also personally greeted by the captain. The docks were swallowed by crowds of friends, families, reporters, and curious people taking farewell of the many passengers being carried out to sea. The maiden voyage began at noon as scheduled. And Titanic was then towed out. I'm sorry, I'm laughing because this is something the movie omitted entirely. Because mm. it really shows how clumsy the entire start was. All right. <laughs> okay, so the maiden voyage began at noon as scheduled. Titanic was then towed out to sea by three puffing towboats. While being towed out, Titanic nearly collided with another ship. Really? Yes. As the enormous ship was led down the channel, the wake caused another ship to swing straight into its path. Holy shit. Yes. And they were literally only four feet from each other. Mm-hmm. And the Titanic quickly reversed her engines and a tugboat came to the rescue and managed to move the other ship away. And this delay took an hour. I understand why Cameron did not put this in. Yeah, it wouldn't be as regal of a start. Enya would not be singing to this. No. (laughs) So after navigating through the channels of Southampton Water and Solent, Titanic headed out into the English Channel. And before finally embarking into the Atlantic, she stopped at two more ports, which they don't have in the movie either. And that was the French port Trinabog, which was four hours after leaving Southampton. And then the following day at 11.30 a.m. at Cork Harbor, which was on the south coast of Ireland. It was a warm day with soft skies and a brisk wind. This is where the last known photo was ever taken of the Titanic. 
At 1.30 p.m., the Titanic departed for her journey across the frigid Atlantic, and their destination was New York, and they planned to arrive the morning of April 17th. So exactly a week, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the voyage. The voyage itself was quite easygoing without any apparent incident. Temperatures remained fairly mild up until Saturday the 13th, whereupon the Titanic crossed a cold weather front with strong winds and tall waves. However, these died down towards Sunday morning, and by the following evening, the sky was crystal clear, the ocean slept calmly, and the air was extremely cold. On the Sunday, April 14, 1912, the Titanic received several warnings from other ships concerning drifting ice around the area of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. Nevertheless, the ship continued to steam at full speed, which, however, was standard practice at the time. A common misconception of the Titanic was that it was trying to set a speed record, which it wasn't. Oh, really? Yeah. However, keeping time was extremely important, and they had already been delayed an hour. Ice warnings were commonly seen as advisories, and as long as they had lookouts, it wasn't a problem, really. They would be able to spot any treacherous icebergs before a collision would occur. Ships had in the past, in fact, collided with icebergs. It wasn't unheard of. However, a majority of these ships were still able to continue on their journeys. And as you well know, the Titanic was, in fact, the largest ship in the world. What could stop it? And Captain Smith himself had declared in 1907, a few years earlier, that he could not imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that. Hmm. How wrong was he? Yeah. So on this fifth day of voyage, it was a cold morning, but the sun was strong and many took promenades basking in the sun's warmth after the Sunday service. The Titanic sliced through the still ocean already over halfway through her journey. The day was like any other day, however, towards the night, the temperature of the water was likely around 28 Fahrenheit, which is minus 2 degrees, Mm. which isn't cold for the area, but it's cold if you land in it as a human being. Yes, that it is. You're going to feel that. And I went to the Titanic exhibit, and they had like a huge block of ice, which was supposed to be the temperature of the water Mm. and they had sort of like a quote-unquote challenge where you were supposed to put your hand on it and see how long you how long you could how long you could hold your hand on the ice and it was so fucking cold yeah in the water that would have been your entire body yeah your entire body just imagining like how your joints start to ache because of the cold and just the inability to move exactly Today, Titanic's radio operators received six messages from other ships warning them of drifting ice, which passengers on the Titanic had begun to notice during the afternoon, so they were passing by icebergs. The speed wasn't reduced and kept at 22 knots, just under its maximum speed. But as discussed, this could be seen as reckless. However, this was standard maritime practice at the time. And according to 5th Officer Harold Lowe, the custom was, quote, to go ahead and depend upon the lookouts in the crow's nest and the watch on the bridge to pick up the ice in time to avoid hitting it. That evening, first-class passengers, among them Jack and his wife Madeline, and Isidore and his wife Ida, were on silver plates served according to the menu of the night. So this is this is the dinner mm-hmm. of the night, okay? Let me guess. Goose. What part of the goose? Liver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's a lot of... I looked up the French words, but I cannot remember them now. Let's not do that. Yeah, so for hors d'oeuvres, oysters, consomme olga, cream of barley, salmon, mousseline sauce, and cucumber. The main courses had filet mignon, lily, saute of chicken, lyonnaise, vegetable marrow, farcie, lamb, mint sauce, roast duckling, applesauce, sirloin of beef, chateau potatoes, green peas, creamed carrots, boiled rice, pommetier or boiled new potatoes, punch romaine, 
roast squab and cress, gold asparagus vinaigrette, pâté de foie gras, celery, and for dessert, Waldorf pudding, peaches and chartreuse, jelly, chocolate vanilla eclairs, and French ice cream. Wow. You want to hear what the third class passengers had? Yeah. Several decks below, August, Wienerström, and Alma, and her four children were served rice soup, bread, but it was all-you-can-eat bread. Sweet corn, roast beef, gravy biscuits, potatoes, plum pudding, and fruit. So it wasn't that bad. That's actually nice. That's better than what I eat now. Yeah. As we close in towards the night's late hours, most of the ship's passengers had dressed down to their pajamas or underclothes and burrowed down into their new warm cots. The sea laid like glass that night, and the sky was so clear that you could barely see where the sky and sea began or ended. The stars became endless. However, there was no moon. And with the sea being so calm, there was nothing to give away the position of the nearby icebergs. Had the sea been rougher, if there had been waves breaking against the icebergs, they would have become more visible. Mm. This so far uneventful night, Captain Smith left other officers in charge and retreated to his cabins. And despite the lookout keeping a sharp lookout for ice, at 11.30, lookout Frederick Fleet spotted something sitting on the horizon, but believed it to just be a mirage or his eyes playing tricks. Ten minutes later, he realized that his eyes were correct, and it was, in fact, an iceberg right in the Titanic's path. Mm. He jumped up and rang the warning bell three hard times and bellowed iceberg right ahead into the telephone to alert the first officer, Murtaugh, who was in command of the ship. Murtaugh ran to the telegraph that sent messages to the engine room and ordered the engines to be put into reverse. He then ordered the ship's wheel to be turned hard a starboard to avoid the iceberg. At that moment, all they could do was wait and wait for collision or yet another close call. So at that time, you can't do anything. No, you did everything you could. Yeah. The ship glided forward, and it soon became apparent that there was no way for the ship to entirely miss the iceberg. Physics. Physics, dude. Yeah. Titanic, determined and impossible to convince otherwise, grazed the side of the iceberg, buckling steel plates that formed the hull of the ship. The ship jolted, and passengers described hearing a grinding noise. When the ship had passed the iceberg, the only signs of a disaster on the above decks were that passengers described. All they saw was like a bunch of ice. Mm. Uh, Mrs. Churchill Candy explained, this is going to be British. Good. The first thing I recall was one of the crew appearing with pieces of ice in his hands. He said he had gathered it from the bow of the boat. And some of the passengers were inclined to believe that he was joking. And many passengers and crew even, they like only felt like a shudder mm. and thought it was maybe a mechanical issue. So several decks down, the gash that had torn the hull was so severe that it couldn't be repaired and the ship had already begun filling with water. The first officer closed the watertight doors, but the gash was far too damaging. So the damage to the Titanic's hull has been disputed and dissected and even today sources vary. But this is from what I've gathered from a lot of sources. Okay, so to the naked eye, the damage would actually seem quite small. There was a series of six openings across the starboard hull, uh, stretching over 300 feet, which is 91 meters. It appears that the entire area of actual damage in total was only 12 to 13 square feet. That's just over one square meter. Wow. Yeah. It's nothing. But the thing is, the opening or gaps were thin and long, one being about 12 meters long. Fuck. Okay. So... They were like fingers slices. Yeah. They were thin as fingers, but they were just really, really long. So like they say in the film, the side was like Morse code, punctured or sliced like that, 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 that. Yeah. Long slashes along the entire hole, like someone taking a knife and just dragging it along the side. And what doomed the ship in the end was where these openings were. They were drawn across six watertight holes. Hmm. 
All six immediately began filling with water. The ship began to flood from the get-go, with the water pouring in at an estimated rate of seven tons per second. That is 15,680 pounds. Do you know how many kilograms that is? 7,112 kilos per second of water. Fuck, per second. Per second. That is 15 times faster than they could pump out. Yeah. And many have asked after, why didn't they try to repair the damage or pump out the water? They did try to pump it out, but it was just filling far too quickly in the water. It wasn't a fucking trickle. And how do you and how do you fill those holes or like tight those holes? The thing is, it's like a geyser. Uh, like, but instead of boiling water, it's also freezing water. Yeah. And it's so strong. This force of the water is just insane. Of course. And after only 10 minutes, six compartments out of 16 had already filled with water. And at this point, the ship was doomed. Lies behind these monstrous fears that has chilled the hearts of men since the beginning of time. The thing is that the Titanic would have been able to withstand up to four compartments being flooded. And the terrible fact is that had Officer Murdoch steered the ship into a head-on collision, there is a large chance that the ship would actually have survived. Really? Yeah. The thing is, he did exactly what he was supposed to of do. Of course. It's the least obvious thing to do. Yeah. To fucking go head-on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, quicker! Yeah. Head forth! Okay. To the lifeboats. Captain Smith felt the collision in his cabin and immediately came to the bridge. Here he was informed of what had happened, and he summoned Thomas Andrews, who was the Titanic's builder. He was here because he was a part of a party of engineers from Harlan and Wolf observing the ship's first passenger voyage. Mm. This is now a copy-paste from Wikipedia because I just can't rewrite it. Yeah. <laughs> the ship was listing five degrees to starboard and was two degrees down by the head within a few minutes of the collision. So listing is when a ship leans to either port or starboard, which is pretty much left or right. Yeah. And down by the head means the bow, the front part, is tilting downward into the water. So Smith and Andrews ran to the below decks and found that the cargo holds, mail room, squash room, had already flooded. The mailroom clerks were frantically trying to save all the mail. Andrews then explained to the captain that too many compartments had now filled with water and there was just no chance that the ship could survive. She was going down no matter what. He told them that he estimated that the ship would at maximum be afloat for another two hours. They had to evacuate about 2,400 people in two hours. In a huge ship. Yeah. Actually, less than two hours because that's when it's entirely under the water. Yeah. And people were asleep at this time mm. as well. Right after midnight, crew members had already begun preparations for the lifeboats. Around 15 minutes past midnight, everything had now started happening at an extreme speed. Stewards began running door to door, waking sleeping passengers and crew, instructing them to go to the boat deck. Now, this is where there was a clear difference in how first, second, and third class passengers were treated. Yeah. And I don't entirely believe that it was an intentional discrimination. It's sort of just what happened in this moment. Yeah. You see, the stewards that were to wake first class passengers had a lot fewer people to wake. Mm. So they took their time and helped them get dressed and proper and so that they could find the, the deck. Naturally, there was discrimination as well, since let's not beat around the bush, but first-class passengers were seen as more important. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So while we have stewards taking care of first-class passengers, there are just as many stewards taking care of second- and third-class passengers, and they just had so many more cabins and people to wake. Because also, like, the experience is still in the forefront of people's minds, that, you know, even though we might all just die now and we're all equal... <laughs> in the phase of death, 
there's still that idea from like the staff that like uh, the thing is that the staff had no idea that the ship was sinking yet yeah they had just gotten orders no one knew actually I'm gonna talk about that later because it's fucking Smith's fault yeah we're gonna talk about that so the stewards that were waking second and third class passengers they pretty much just threw open the doors and started yelling to everyone to put on life belts i'm gonna say life belts now because it's this is from england Uh and otherwise you say life jackets but life belts is what is mostly used okay to everyone to put life belts on and get to the boat deck as fast as possible at first, many could not believe that the boat was sinking and refused to even board the boats. The thing was that at first, it wasn't really explained to anyone. No one really understood. Like I said, none of the stewards really knew that the yeah, boat was going so down. Yeah, so how would they say that to the passengers? Exactly. So you have to imagine sort of their position. And it was so cold out that night and they'd just been woken from their warm beds. It's just too unbelievable to even fathom that this palace could go under. Yeah. It's like if it's not like a fire drill, but how many times have you just stayed sitting? Yeah, but then again, you know, like the thing you mentioned about how it was constructed to not feel like a boat. Yeah. You're almost like fed this illusion that you're on dry land. Yeah, that you're sitting on a you're sitting on an island in a hotel. Yeah. And yeah. it's just so big as well. There's not a chance that this entire ginormous boat carrying over 2000 people mm. in any way is going to go under the water especially not to a fucking iceberg exactly yeah. that's that since no one really noticed anything it's not like a submarine attack where you got a torpedo and there are explosions no, and stuff no. most people didn't see anything on boat deck as the lifeboats were being prepared there was a deafening sound coming from steam which was being vented from the boilers the steam was coming from ice cold water hitting the extreme heat from the engines and boilers oh, yeah. it was described to quote from a passenger a harsh deafening boom that made conversation difficult if one imagines 20 locomotives blowing off steam in a low key it could give you some idea of the unpleasant sound that met us as we climbed out to the top deck and the noise was so loud that the crew had to use hand signals to communicate. Wow. So imagine the panic in this sound. And also the sound is coming from so deep down in the boat. It's coming from what you're standing on. Yeah. And like stated, the lifeboats were able to accommodate 1,178, which was barely half of the people on board, which meant that even if the lifeboats were to be filled entirely, people were going to die. Yeah. It said that as Captain Smith began to understand that a majority of his passengers were going to die, he became entirely paralyzed by indecision. He failed to give clear orders, was at times incoherent, and gave contradicting orders. But most importantly, he never gave the command to abandon ship. Oh no. He was so unclear that some officers didn't even find out that the ship was sinking until 1.15. Wow. Smith also never informed the officers that they didn't have enough lifeboats to save everyone. The crew was likewise unprepared for the emergency as lifeboat training had been minimal. And there was actually supposed to have been a lifeboat drill that morning, but it was canceled. Oh, that turned Swedish. Yeah, I got really upset. Thomas E. Bonzal, a historian of the disaster, has commented that the evacuation was so badly organized that even if they had the number of lifeboats they needed, it is impossible to see how they could have launched them, given the lack of time and poor leadership. Yeah. So we're inside the ship now. Air could be heard and felt being forced out by the inrushing water. Passengers inside could feel air being pushed up like a storm wind, and the ship had begun tilting beneath their feet, and people were now starting to understand what was really, really happening. By about 20 minutes past, second officer Lightoller recalled Smith standing near the bridge, looking out over the still ocean in a trance-like state. According to Lightoller, quote, I yelled at the top of my voice, Hadn't we better get the women and children into the boat, sir? He heard me and nodded in reply. 
Smith then ordered Lytoler and Murdoch to put the women and children in and lower away. This is when the infamous woman and children order was uttered. However, this order was problematic as officers interpreted differently. Okay. Murdoch took it as women and children first, while Lytoler took it to mean women and children only. Yeah. So for this reason, okay, Lytoler, you're an idiot. He lowered empty seats if women and children were not around. What? Yes. That makes no sense. But that's the order. The thing is that an order is a fucking order. Oh my god. Yeah. And Murdoch, well, he lowered women and children first, and then if men were around, he would fill the empty seats with men, mm. which is the fucking right thing to do. Yeah. The officers weren't either informed about how many people each lifeboat could carry. So to be on the safe side, they didn't fill the boats. If the boats had been filled to their full capacity... An extra 500 people could have been saved. It's major. Mm -hmm. Can you also imagine standing there on the side as a man and seeing empty seats? Yeah, you're not allowed to vote. And probably a lot of those women and children who had entered the boats were, you know, wives and yeah, they're they're children, children, wives, sisters, friends. Yeah. There was also the issue that few passengers at first were willing to board the lifeboats, and the officers in charge of the evacuation found it difficult to persuade them. And this is when our friend John Astor declared. We are safer here than in a little boat. The thing is that he was very much in denial up until the very, very end. Yeah. It sounds stupid now in hindsight, but it's freezing and you're going to be sent to a little rowboat. Yeah, no, I, I understand. I get that. it. At a quarter to one, the first boat rowed away. This was boat seven and had been supervised by Officer Murdoch. The boat had a capacity of 65, but only 28 people were on board. At 10 past 1, rockets were being fired from the bridge to attract attention from nearby ships. And radio operators Jack Phillips and Harold Bride were repeatedly sending out the distress signal, CQD. The operators were begging for assistance. At this time, Bride suggested to his senior colleague, Phillips, that he should use the new SOS signal. Quote, it may be your last chance to send it, he said jokingly. Fuck. Phillips thereafter began to alternate between the two, and after this, SOS became the commonly used distress signal. Hmm. These two operators sat up until the very, very end, pleading for help. It wasn't until the room started to flood with water that they actually did evacuate. Though Bride survived the sinking, unfortunately, Phillips did not. Hmm. These are, like, the unsung heroes. Yeah. No one talks about, like, how they knew that no one will be saved unless we do this. Yeah. So they sat up until the very end. One of the several ships to answer was the Armas Carpathia, but it would have taken four hours to reach the sinking ship. The thing is, there was, however, a closer ship, the SS Californian. However, worried about his ship hitting an iceberg, the captain, Stanley Lord, decided to halt for the night at 10 p.m. And 10 minutes before the Titanic hit its iceberg, the Californian's sole radio operator shut his set down and went to bed. Sorry, I'm getting really emotionally invested and I switched to Swedish. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is that if they'd heard the call, there's a big chance that this wouldn't have all been a disaster. People are now running, screaming on decks. Families, friends, and couples were being split apart as women and children were being put into boats and then descending down into the dark ocean below. One passenger, 50-year-old Anne Elizabeth Isham, reportedly refused to leave the Titanic without her Great Dane, Mm. which was too large to be put in a lifeboat. Yeah, of course. Isham's body was later found in the sea by recovering ships. She was said to have been found floating with her arms around her dog. Oh, no. Isham was one of five female first-class passengers to die. Really? Yeah. That's how focused they were on first-class women. Yeah. 
At around 20 minutes past one, in boiler room number four, water began flooding in. The ship's engineers and a handful of volunteer firemen and greasers stayed behind in the unflooded number one, two, and three boiler rooms, and in the turbine and engine rooms. They continued working on the boilers and the electrical generators in order to keep the ship's lights and pumps going and to power the radio so that the distress signals could be sent. They would not leave their posts despite knowing most likely what was going to happen. They remained at their posts until the very, very end. None of the ship's 35 engineers and electricians survived. Neither did any of Titanic's five postal clerks, who I mentioned before, were last seen struggling to save the mailbags. They were caught by a rising water somewhere on D-deck. They really stayed true to their duty. That's the thing. that A lot of this has been cut from history somehow. Yeah. At this time, many of the third-class passengers were also noticing the pouring into their quarters on EF and G-Dex. Swedish passenger Carl Jonsson, who was 22 at the time, and he was a third-class survivor, later recalled, Then I run down to my cabin to bring my other clothes, watch, and bag, but only had time to take the watch and coat when water with enormous force came into the cabin, and I had to rush up to the deck again where I found my friends standing with life belts on and with a terror painted on their faces. What should I do now with no life belt and no shoes and no cap? Isn't that the most heartbreaking? Yeah. That deep down we're all humans and we we it's difficult to leave possessions. And also the thing that he wanted to have his cap on. Yeah. I'm going to cry. I can see that. <laughs> okay. I cried when I wrote this, so. Really? Oh, yeah. God damn, these stories, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I sort of go into each and every individual. Yeah. During this time, the ship's band is playing, and I don't exactly know when they began playing, but they played up until the very end, and their intention was to just keep people calm. Mm. As long as they played, then surely there couldn't be a disaster or something troubling, because why would they be sitting just, you know, playing their instruments? The band played up, as I said, into the very, very end. One second-class passenger said, Many brave things were done that night. But none were more brave than those done by men playing minute after minute as the ship settled quietly lower and lower in the sea. The music they played served alike as their own immortal requiem and their right to be recalled on the scrolls of undying fame. That is so beautiful. Right? As the boats are continuously being lowered along the side of the ship, the passengers in the lowering lifeboats can see through the portholes, and they can see how the elegant furniture that's barely been used is now floating the grand rooms that have begun filling with water. And the seriousness of the situation, that being that the boat's not just sinking and we need to get to lifeboats, but the boat is sinking and there aren't enough lifeboats, has begun really settling in now. The panic and terror and grief had begun setting in, and people had begun taking farewell of one another. Husbands and fathers escorted their children and wives onto the boats, waving at them as they were lowered down, never to see them again. At this time, Isidore and Ida Strauss were seen standing near lifeboat number eight with Mrs. Strauss's maid, Ellen Bird. Despite the officer in charge allowing all three to board the lifeboat, Isidore refused as long as there were women and children remaining on the ship. Mm. Isidore pled with his wife to still leave on the lifeboat, but she refused, saying, We have lived together for many years. Where you go, I go. Oh my god. Her words have been corroborated by several survivors from the lifeboat and others on the deck as well. Ida then gave Ellen her fur coat, saying that she would not be needing it. Mm. Encouraged by the Strausses, Ellen boarded lifeboat 8 and was saved. She later tried to return the coat to the Strauss's daughter, but she told her to keep it because it was a gift from her mother. Mm. Isidore and Ida were last seen standing arm in arm on deck. And you've seen the 1997 film. And you know the couple lying in the bed with room filling? It's the only thing I will never... That's based on the Strausses. Yeah. 
And despite people slowly understanding that the boat was sinking and the lifeboats weren't enough, people still clung to the hope or the possibility that the worst would or just could not happen. I believe that many men understood that they would not survive the night, but they knew that they needed to get their wives and children on the boat. So no matter what, they just, they just had to lie to them then. Lucian Smith told his wife, Eloise, It is only a matter of form to have women and children first. The ship is thoroughly equipped and everyone here will be saved. Charlotte Collier's husband Harvey called to his wife as she was put into a lifeboat. Go, Lottie, for God's sake, be brave and go. I'll get a seat in another boat. I think here in the story, we need to talk about third-class passengers and what was happening to them during this time. Yeah. Since up to this point, the vast majority of passengers who had boarded lifeboats were from first and second class. Some third-class passengers had made it up, but many had gotten lost in the labyrinth of halls and staircases or trapped behind barriers and partitions that segregated the accommodations for the third-class areas from the first and second-class areas. Now, this is another point which has been very disputed. Some have asked, were third-class passengers locked away so that they couldn't get to safety? Furthermore, claiming that this is why very few third-class passengers survived. The thing concerning the partitions and gates is it seems that in some places the crew did hinder third-class passengers' escape. Hmm. And this was so that they wouldn't rush the lifeboats. Irish survivor Margaret Murphy wrote in May 1912, Before all steerage passengers, which is, it's just another name for third class, had even a chance of their lives, the Titanic sailors fastened the doors in companionways leading up from the third class section. A crowd of men was trying to get up to the higher deck and were fighting the sailors, all striking and scuffling and swearing. Women and some children were there praying and crying. Then the sailors fastened down the hatchways leading to the third class section. They said that they wanted to keep the air down there so the vessel could stay up longer. It meant all hope was gone for all those who were still down there. However, these barriers haven't entirely been portrayed correctly in media. Even witnesses' stories have been sort of like, is that really what happened? Because no blueprints of the ship shows these full-length gates between the passenger areas, which they show in the movie. It's like Mm. from the ceiling to the floor. That wasn't real, according to the blueprints. And the U.S. immigration regulations required segregation of third class from first and second. And on Titanic, waist-high gates. So they were just waist-high separated the classes in fear of spreading diseases. So what happened is that stewards nearby prevented gate jumping simply, well, not so simply. It's also explained that the stewards, the thing is that no one really understood what was happening. Yeah. And as we've learned, rules and regulations and orders are more important than anything. So what the stewards did were they placed themselves by these gates because you're not allowed to let people between yeah. between the um, uh, classes. Yeah, classes, exactly. So what people think is that stewards just waited for instructions by these partitions. And eventually they left to help with the evacuation, leaving gates unguarded, which explains a later surge of third-class passengers onto the boat deck. This, however, was unfortunately after most lifeboats had already left. Yeah. And the thing is that no evidence presented has really pointed to any malicious intent. And I don't think that... I don't think it was... uh, the thing is that I think malicious intent is such a harsh word for it. Yeah. But I don't think that you can deny that they it was did prioritize I, that I believe. But yeah, you know, there was still this understanding that these people who have paid the most money will get the utmost respect and the best treatment, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. The question is if there was perhaps this to save a few, you have well, sort of a sacrifice had to be made. Mm. That if everyone was allowed on deck on the same time, there'd be chaos, and maybe people would fall or overboard, or maybe 
boats would tumble off or something and that maybe we need to focus on these people first and then let them and then there's also this like social prejudice on like third class passengers that you know if you're poor there's like behavioral issues and you're more violent and you're more uh, you're less educated yeah and i think absolutely the fact that most were immigrants yeah i mean just look at today what's happening in the world yeah it's pretty similar yeah Okay, so however, there were other factors that made it nearly impossible for third-class passengers to make it to the deck in time. And that was the long and winding route to the deck. The thing is that they were on absolute opposite ends of where they had to be going. And on top of that, there were several decks down, so proximity was an extreme issue. There was no single staircase leading all the way up through the six to eight decks they would have to climb to get near the lifeboats. And there were no maps of the ship that they could use. The thing is that even the staff had difficulties finding their way around. Yeah. And furthermore, many didn't speak English and couldn't understand what was happening even. I just can't imagine how scary that would have been. Yeah. And even if they did get to the deck, some refused to leave their husbands, seeing as many times in the families the men were the breadwinners. And also having to choose to split your family isn't... It's not easy for any class. No one should have to fucking make that choice. No. And another reason also... No, this is just so heartbreaking was that many third-class passengers were, like we said, immigrants traveling with their families and all their worldly possessions. So they tried to bring all these suitcases and belongings with them because they could never afford to replace them. Yeah, of course. And on top of that, many were carrying and tugging along their small children. They just couldn't get to where they had to be going in time. There's some stories of pastors being seen dragging their trunks and suitcases along corridors even as the water was rising around them. And witnesses have also stated that they saw crowds of passengers with their trunks and possessions as if they were standing, waiting for someone to direct them on where to go. So they just stood there waiting, hoping for someone to explain to them what was happening or how they were to get to the decks. And I think like many, when you see a group of people, you sort of think the whole bystander effect, everyone can't be wrong, so I'm just going to stand here and be quiet. And there's also this, I think, as a third-class passenger or just as a quote-unquote lower person in society, you're so affected by authority. Because you've been dogged around by it your entire life. Exactly, and instructed where to go and such. So they were just waiting for someone to tell them what to do. And no one came. And some, overwhelmed, just gave up and congregated in prayer in the third-class dining room. By 1.30, the sinking rate of the front section increased until Titanic reached a down angle of about 10 degrees. Astor helped his wife and her maid and nurse into lifeboat four. He asked if he could join his wife due to her delicate condition. However, he was told that only women and children were boarding. He then asked for the boat's number so that he could find her afterwards. Some reports have stated that he was indeed allowed to go on board, but that he stepped aside for two children. Hmm. After the lifeboat was lowered and his wife was rowed into the darkness, Astor was last seen alive on the starboard ridge wing, smoking a cigarette with a Jacquois Fritrelle. A survivor claims to later have seen Astor in the water clinging to a raft with the editor William Thomasted. The survivor said, Their feet became frozen, and they were forced to release their hold. Both were drowned. Madeline, her nurse, and her maid survived. Their dog Kitty did not survive the sinking dole. Astor's body was later found and identified. Among the items found on him was a gold pocket watch, which his son Vincent is claimed to have worn the rest of his life. Now we're at 2 a.m., Collapsible sea is launched with 39 people. When men started trying to climb on board, an officer had to fire a warning shot in the air. At this point, the ship was leaning so much that the boat grazed the rivets of the Titanic's hull. It's also around this time the band stops playing. Finally, a swell third-class passengers found their way to the boat deck just as the last lifeboats were being launched. 
By all counts, they looked confused as they gazed at the empty davits from which the lifeboats had been lowered. They were in shock over the fact that they were just too late. Yeah, just the realization. The thing is that this has been, so far, less than two hours. Yeah. It's just gone so quickly. And among these were Alma and her children. Alma had dressed all her children warmly, making sure that no one would be cold, and it just took such a long time that when she finally got to the lifeboats, they'd already left. Yeah. And this is where she met August on the boat deck. August explains later how he'd met Alma there by a collapsible A and helped her carry one of her children. Alma had just successfully put life belts on all the children when the ship jolted and they were tossed into the ocean. Oh, God. When August resurfaced, he had lost the child. And August was later found and he was helped onto a boat. And at this point, the Titanic's bow was now entirely submerged, but all lights were still on, twinkling in the darkness. From the lifeboat, survivors could see hundreds of people clustered at the stern. There were over 1,500 people on the ship still, and there was no chance for escape now. Yeah. Captain Smith went into the bridge to await his fate at around 2.17 a.m., just three minutes before the ship went down completely. Some have stated to have seen the captain in the water, however, with a life belt. One survivor has stated that they saw the captain put a pistol to his head. Mm. Other witnesses have reported having seen Captain Smith commit suicide as well. Smith was lost at sea that night, and his body was never found. Mm. At about 2.15, so a few minutes before the last sighting of the captain... Titanic's angle in the water began to increase rapidly as water poured into previously unfloated parts of the ship through deck hatches. The sudden increasing angle caused what one survivor called a giant wave to wash along the ship from the forward end of the boat deck, sweeping a huge amount of people away into the sea. The bow unwavering continued to sink. The stern rose and started pulling itself into an upwards vertical position. During the ascent, all the lights went out and the entire ship was swallowed by night. Then, when it was almost entirely vertical, an explosion rang through the screams of people, and people began plummeting to the water, and people were screaming in agony as they hit the hard surface of the ocean only to resurface and try to tread water in below freezing temperatures. The explosion heard was the weight forcing the ship to split in two between the third and fourth funnel. You see, before this, the ship was practically vertical. It wasn't entirely vertical, but it was close. And the entire bow was submerged and the stern was entirely out of the water. But the weight of the stern was just too heavy and a boat isn't, well, it's not built to be in this sort of position. So it cracked in two. The bow then sank to the ocean floor as the stern slowly filled with water. It started almost bobbing slightly. And for a moment, people believed that it might stay float that way. It stayed that way for moments, but then it also sunk to its watery grave. And along with it, all its passengers still clinging to the railing. Survivor Dorothy Gibson has described the moments before the ship was swallowed and she was sitting in the lifeboats. Suddenly, there was a wild coming together of voices from the ship and we noticed an unusual commotion among the people around the railing. Then, the awful thing happened, the thing that will remain in my memory until the day I die. Dorothy listened as 1,500 people cried out to be saved, a noise she described as a horrific mixture of yells, shrieks, and moans. Their terrible screams were almost answered by a deeper sound bubbling from under the water. The noise was of explosions that she likened to the terrific power of Niagara Falls. No one can describe the frightful sounds. At 2.20 a.m., the boat was entirely swallowed and gone. It took the Titanic about three hours for the unsinkable ship to fill with water, break in two, and plunge to the bottom of the ocean. Mm. What was left was hundreds of people left screaming for help or screaming after loved ones as they tried to stay alive in the water. As stated, the water was 28 Fahrenheit. The human body loses heat to the water around 30 times faster than it does in air. When the core body temperature falls approximately 89 Fahrenheit, a decrease in consciousness occurs. 
And if the core temperature cools to below 86, heart failure becomes a major concern. And this is what is the most common death uh, among uh, hypothermia-related deaths. The people of the Titanic would have floated there for several minutes up to max an hour before the cold got them. It was so cold in the air as well that there were even several people who died of hypothermia on the lifeboats. Dorothy, when describing sitting in the lifeboat, said there was only silence. No one said a word. There was nothing to say, nothing we could do. And the thing is that at this point, people in the lifeboats didn't even know if the operators had managed to send out a distress call. So They might just be yeah, waiting for death as well. Exactly. Were they to drift for miles in the vast ocean? Was that how they were supposed to die instead? Yeah. Once the ship went under, August was helped into a boat, as stated. He later describes how he saw a woman in the water and he grabbed her hand. Weakened by the cold, he was unable to assist her further, and after a while, she drifted away. Mm. He said, All the feeling had left us. If we wanted to know if we still had legs or any other part left, we had to feel down into the water with one hand. The only exercise we got was when someone gave up hope and died, whom we immediately threw overboard to give the live ones a little more space and at the same time lighten the weight of the boat. Now, Rigel, our puppy champ. Rigel had been released alongside all the other dogs by an unknown passenger who wanted to give the dogs a chance and spare them the fate of drowning in locked cages. That would have been us. (laughs) (laughs) That's where we were. (laughs) Heartbreakingly, most of the dogs were never seen again, but Rigel wasn't one of them. Mm. Whilst most people died of hypothermia in the cold water, Rigel, the Newfoundland dog, was bred to function in harsh conditions of the North Atlantic. He had webbed feet, a rudder-like tail, and a water-resistant coat that made him a natural swimmer. A rudder-like tail! Yeah, it's so adorable. And his body in many ways worked like a polar bear's body, and he could survive extreme cold. And it's said that he searched for his master for some time in the water, but gave up and decided to stay close to lifeboat number four. The dog was too large to bring onto the boat, though so he stayed just swimming by it for the following hours. Mm. Throughout the night, survivors of the disaster sat in lifeboats praying for daylight and rescue. As dawn broke on April 15th, when some had already fallen asleep, they were woken to the side of a ship. The sun's weak rays just so casting light on the name Armis Carpathia. Survivors were hoisted up in slings or climbed rope ladders up onto the deck, where they were given hot drinks and blankets. On these decks, people waited. As lifeboat after lifeboat was saved, they waited to see who was on each lifeboat and who wasn't. Mm. Due to the fog that had settled on the ocean surface, the Carpathia had a difficult time seeing all the lifeboats. Just as she was about to turn for New York, Rigel began barking. Oh my god! So they had missed the last lifeboat. I don't know if this is true. Like It has to be. It has to be, exactly. Carpathia's captain, Arthur Henry Rostron, heard the dog and they spotted the little boat bobbing in the mist. All on board were saved, and so was Rigel. Mm. This story, however, has been the subject of some discussion and dispute. Fuck those people. I know. Seeing as no one remembered seeing a dog on the lifeboat. But he wasn't on the lifeboat. He was next to it. He was swimming. Yeah. So take it with a pinch of salt. But Rigel was real, and he did survive. Yeah. That is known. And Rigel was later adopted by either a survivor or a crew member of the Carpathia, and he was loved till the day he died of old age. Mm, Good boy. He was such a good boy. So the lifeboats that went back. Only two of the 16 lifeboats went back to pick up survivors, and they ended up saving only six people. Mm. The first was Quartermaster Perkis, who was able to pull five people from the water, but only three survived. One lifeboat headed by Officer Harold Lowe headed back with a working crew of six men and picked up four survivors from the water. One of the four men found in the water, a William F. White from New York, died in the lifeboat. 
A British inquiry asked Officer Lowe why he didn't return more quickly to help the people in the water. In his testimony, Harold Lowe responded by saying, because it would have been suicide to go back there until people had thinned out. Lowe further stated, it would have been useless to try it because a drowning man clings at anything. Yeah. Lowe feared that the large number of people in the water would have swamped or overturned the lifeboat. It is Officer Lowe's boat that saves Rose, Kate Winslet, in the movie. Yeah. After an extremely rough journey full of bad weather, ice, fog, thunderstorms, and rough seas, the Carpathia sailed into New York on a stormy Thursday night. This was on April 18th. As she made her way through the harbor, she was surrounded by masses of tiny vessels clinging to her like pilot fish. These vessels were chartered by news corporations desperate to break what would be one of the biggest stories of modern times. From the dark, sitting in these little boats, reporters shouted through megaphones, offering ridiculous sums of money for information and yeah. like just exclusives. And the badass Captain Rostron then proclaimed that he would shoot any pressman who dared venture aboard his ship. As Carpathia arrived at Pier 54 in New York, the night was dark and it was raining profusely. The night was so black that the New York skyline could barely be made out, and the wharves in the harbor were filled and overcrowded by 40,000 shadows of people standing waiting. These were families hoping to be reunited with loved ones, news reporters, and just about anyone that had been alerted through radio or newspapers. Yeah, people wanted to come see that shit. Yeah. Even before Carpathia arrived in New York, efforts had started to retrieve the dead. In the distance, the bodies looked like seagulls, their white life belts keeping them afloat. Most of the bodies had already drifted off during the night, though. Four ships chartered by the White Star Line succeeded in retrieving 328 bodies. Captain Wilhelm of the passenger liner SS Bremen, a ship which just passed the scene, described what he saw. There were men, women, and children, all life preserves on. I counted 125, then I grew sick of the sight. Mm -hmm. The steamer McKay Bennett described the retrieval of the bodies as this. The cruelty of the disaster is most evident with the bodies. Indeed, some of them appeared battered, bruised, and cut up from the event of the sinking. They were frozen in the treacherously cold North Atlantic at night and were bleached by sunlight during the day. As if an amusement for a cruel sea, they bobbed, had their faces repeatedly dunked in the water, and became wrinkled and discolored as they decomposed. Wow. Tracy Oost, a forensic anthropologist, has explained this concerning what the crew on the boats that went back saw. They would have seen frozen and frostbitten bodies. They probably wouldn't have looked in bad condition on the surface, but once they started pulling bodies out of the water, they would have noticed that the submerged lower portion was far more decomposed. Mm. Most probably didn't drown, they would have frozen to death. Many of the bodies were far too mangled or rotten to be identified, so people were identified by their belongings, which were meticulously logged and stored in numbered bags. So when you look up victims of the Titanic anywhere, there's always a little description of what they were found with because that's essentially what identified them. Yeah. Also, most of the bodies were never recovered, and the only evidence of their deaths was found 73 years later when they went back to the Titanic, and among the debris and sand, they found pairs of shoes lying side by side in clothes where bodies had once lain before eventually decomposing or being eaten by sea life. The thing is that there are some people, there are myths that bones are and stuff yeah. are there but there's nothing down there human anymore no there was a massive outrage from the world why were there so few lifeboats why did the titanic proceed into the ice field at full speed and there were several inquiries that followed and we're not going to go into them because they're lengthy then it's very very lengthy yeah so what happened to the passengers we introduced on april 23rd 1912 out on the north atlantic sea The seascape was dressed in a thin layer of fog, and just below the fog was a graveyard of floating bodies and wreckage from the ship. 
Doors, suitcases, chairs, tables were bobbing around, scattered everywhere. In between the furniture floated frozen passengers and crew, mothers with children still in their arms, men clutching to debris, and children that just never had a chance. On the first run of the day, a cutter, which is just a smaller boat, with five men entered the floating graveyard. Silently, they rode forward, and in the distance, they saw the first body, which was that of a woman being tossed back and forth in the waves. As they approached her, they could see that her lifeboat had kept her afloat, and her head was drawn back up towards the sky. And this was Alma. Mm. Alma's husband, Niels, read about the tragedy in the news the next morning, and is described to have been pale and ill when he leaned desperately over the desk at the offices of the White Star and asked in a broken English if his wife and children had been accounted for. The clerk scanned the survivors list and didn't find Paulson's family. Mm. Paulson then stated, hopefully, that maybe they missed the ship. The clerk then looked at the list of those who sailed and stated, your family was on the boat, but none of them are accounted for. Paulson was said to have gone blank and was assisted to his seat. His face and hands were bathed in cold water before he became completely conscious again. Paulson's grief is described as the most heartbreaking and extreme of any who visited the offices of the White Star. And his loss is among the worst, if not the worst. He'd lost his entire family in one night. Alma's body was, as stated, recovered, but none of their children were ever found. Yeah. Nils Paulson never truly recovered from losing his family, but he remarried another Swedish woman named Christina. They moved from Chicago and bought a house where Nils planted trees in the garden in memory of his wife and children. He died in West Monroe, Louisiana, in 1964. Yeah. That's not a long time ago, though. My parents were born in that year. Yeah. Yeah. Isidore Strauss's body was also recovered and positively identified. Ida's body was unfortunately never found. So the family collected water from the wreck site and placed it in an urn in the mausoleum. Isidore and Ida are memorialized on a cenotaph outside the mausoleum with a quote from the Song of Solomon 8-7. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Mm-hmm. And August Venestrom survived and met Namoy Johnson, and they moved to Culver, Indiana, where he became a gardener. They had seven children, and August died on November 22, 1950, and is buried in Culver, Indiana. So, there were an estimated 2,400 people on the ship that night. Out of 2,400 people, 1,517 died. That is 832 passengers and 685 crew members. Around 63% of the entire ship died. 89 Swedes were among the deceased. So, at the moment, the ship now lies 2.5 miles four kilometers below the Atlantic surface on the ocean floor off the coast of Newfoundland. And I'd like to put out there, because in the movie, Rose, she's on a door that's floating in the water. Hmm. And I want to put it out there that Jack could not be on that fucking door. No matter what people say, (laughs) it's physically impossible to be on that door. Oh, that there was space enough for him? Yeah. Yeah. That's not how buoyancy works, you people. No. And that is the story of the Titanic. Wow, Linnea. Wow, that was incredible. That was so well done. And I got to point out that you were seriously getting teary-eyed yeah, during this. But I cry every episode. No, you do it not. It would have been weird if I didn't cry this episode. Well, you cry out of fear, usually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't cry. You cry out of fear, mostly. <laughs> you know I mean? You don't cry because you get moved by things. No, no, that, no. I cry when it's sad. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, when I'm terrified. <laughs> <laughs> but it was incredibly well done, and I can see, I can definitely see why why you've been so bewitched by this story. Right? It's, yeah. It's just so 
It's just, oh, I just can't talk about it. No. Well, you just did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I'm, two hours later, I just can't talk about it, guys. It's just too much. <laughs> no, so, yeah, it's, there's this part that a lot of people cut out when discussing the Titanic, and that is the retrieval of the bodies. Yeah. And I sort of wanted to focus a lot on that and sort of what volunteers and people who were coming out there to get these bodies, what they were met by, and the fact that, like, in the movie, there's this glorified image that people just turned pale and they had, like, crystals on their eyelashes and were pretty. But no, they were, a lot of them were just sliced apart. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. I can't imagine what it's like having that profession or volunteering to retrieve bodies from freezing water. I mean... Or water. In general. Yeah, in general, bodies in water. Yeah. Because I think it's very prevalent in people who have done that, that like that sticks with you forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, bodies in general are fucked up to retrieve, but it's just something in the way that the water affects the decomposition. And the bloating and the color and the skin and the, yeah. It's just absolutely awful. Yeah. And also these, you know, these, the children. Yeah. One thing that I find is really difficult is also to understand the magnitude of what 1,500 people are. Yeah. Because what I always try to do is start counting, you know, one, two, three, four, just when we're up in five and that's a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, this this room. 1,500 people. Yeah. This room, if we packed people, the one that we're sitting in right now, we could probably fit. What do you think? I've had 50 in my apartment, which is close to this. Yeah. Maybe 50 in this room, and that yeah. would be a fuckload of people to just yeah. die. And that's not even 10%. Wait, is it? Times 10. That's 500, yeah. Okay, so it's not even 10%. Someone's like, that's 5,000, bitches. <laughs> Go to school. No, but yeah, 500. Yeah. Yeah, so it's an overwhelming story, which I think is very important. I think it's very important to not forget the people who were heroes. Yeah, who sacrificed themselves. And not to fetishize it too much. Because there is something romantic and beautiful about this era. And you have Jack and you have Rose that did not exist. But James Cameron was really, he's just really impressive. (laughs) He did it justice in terms of wanting to keep the honesty of the story yeah and he did cut out the scene with the dogs yeah he had a scene where he was going to show the fate of the dogs but he and i respect that choice so much yeah yeah that would have been too harsh yeah it would have been too much and there are scenes uh with the elderly couple with the strausses uh that are in the deleted they have i have because i have four i think i have four editions of this film yeah but there are only two editions that exist And I have like three soundtracks and one of the soundtracks has dialogue in the back. <laughs> but one of the scenes in the the extended version is when the Strausses and Ida says that to her husband yeah. and makes that choice. Wow. Fucking well done. Thank you. I don't know how we can finish this off because I'm just mind blown. Well, what did you learn this week? So much. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, I had no idea of Smith, the captain, and his inability to yeah. function. That is something, he is one of the characters in the story who might have done least, but has been praised the most. Yeah. Because after this, he sort of became this epitome, this god as, you know, the stiff upper lip British yeah. dude who serves the country in duty, but he yeah. is the one. He and sacrificed really, himself. Exactly. For, yeah. Went down with his ship 
but he failed his crew and he failed his passengers and what's so sad is too that like you can't be too antagonizing about him he either because like that's human. the human condition i can't even imagine like having to make the choices in that moment he had to choose who was to live and who was to die because he knew yeah he was the only one at the moment and thomas andrews they knew but then again you know there's always that aspect of denial that I can't, I can understand how even if you logically know something, you have this like protection of your, like your brain is almost trying to save yourself from the trauma mm-hmm. that your instinct is to just deny that that could be what actually goes down. And like that is obviously not helpful, but no. it's also not something that a lot of people can control and you just never know. You just never know how you're going to act. No, exactly. You you will never know what sort of person you are until you are put into that situation. In a state of crisis. Exactly. And the ships... Oh, crap. Um, I can't remember who his role now. His name was Ismay. Uh, fuck. I can't... Oh, this is so embarrassing. Yeah. I was like, I should know, but... Um, Dude. The if it's the architect or the designer or... Uh, I'm gonna be a white star, white star lines. Oh crap, I can't remember. However, he was a rich white dude in the first class who did get a spot in one of the lifeboats, one of the few yeah. white, white men, <laughs> one of the few, sorry, uh, men. Yeah. And he was persecuted for this. Really? He got so much shit that he just had to retreat from the public because how could you do that when the ship is going down how could you take a spot on that boat and it's the survival i mean i can't blame him i mean it's not like he didn't lift a child and chug it over the ship's (laughs) side he took a spot that was empty and he got the world just went after him yeah because everyone sees that his selfishness and his saving his own ass is what took someone else's life. But in reality, there was a lot of people who could have fit on those boats that never got a chance just from pure bureaucracy. Well, okay. This was this week. (laughs) Yeah. And and sorry. And just when you ask me what I've learned, all of it. I've learned all of it. Okay. Oh, good. (laughs) So, So, you know, I've always been fascinated with Titanic, but not at all on the same level you have and I've never investigated it the same way you have so while I know a lot of the things like the core pieces to like what happened the speed of which it happened etc I knew nothing of the other stuff mm-hmm. and so I can't just choose one thing I've learned because it's all of it good yeah <laughs> and I'm absolutely going to have inaccuracies in that text so if anyone titanic fans or people who just know more <laughs> you know just contact us and tell us and then we can do a corrections, um, a, a corrections corner no uh, but we can correct that because you know at the end of the day there's gonna be facts that don't have one solid truth to them or like one solid what i'm saying is there's gonna be sources of information that get things wrong but we today cannot know whether or not they're right or wrong exactly because there's just it's been too long it's also something that's like you're trying to explain a course of action that took place where thousands of people were in a state of panic and a boat was fucking sinking in the atlantic so you know the source material from the beginning is highly flawed 
and it's solely experiential. Is that the word? I know exactly what you mean when you said it. Yeah. If it's a word or not, I don't care. I know exactly what you mean, Johanna. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, there's always going to be someone who feels like this is the more reasonable fact. Exactly. And I think especially when we're talking about the gates and the partitions in the third class area, I absolutely believe, I know that myself in that position would have been like, you're keeping me here because I'm third class Fuck and you're yeah. barricading me and you want me to die. Absolutely. And so I think... But then again, they wouldn't have done that if those people were first class exactly. passengers. They exactly. wouldn't have told them to wait. No, exactly. But it's not entirely black and white. Absolutely not. But I was also thinking about a thing that you said there with that whole thing. I don't know what it looked like, but even if it was like gates that were like waist, yeah, waist height, height yeah. I'm assuming that those gates were kind of attached to corridors. Yes. And it just brought like this flashback to when you were talking about the fire at uh, yeah, Bacca yeah, Branden yeah. and how panicked people in a very small space and a very small um, exit how that works or more like how it doesn't work mm -hmm. um so that makes sense too that it would be like a human blockage that just even if you wanted to cross that uh fence or that gate it's a death sentence because you're gonna get pushed from behind and you're gonna get stampede that's something that's really interesting is that nobody knows how many people that maybe died in stampedes yeah how many died before the ship actually went down through humans human error and human error and just humans doing everything to survive yeah and i know that as they were as the radio operators were sitting in the bridge they had their life jackets on and another passenger if it was another crewman had tried to take their life jackets and they had to well punch him or beat yeah. him so the survival just takes over the instincts and everything just takes over entirely yeah because you love to think that you would be really high and mighty in one of those situations Ooh, i know now i'm not someone who'd give up my seat yeah no matter how cute that child is no but that's... No, the two okay the, the child can sit in my lap exactly yeah but it's difficult because you always hate those people in the movies. Like, how dare they? How could they? Exactly. And just, wow. I mean, I could never promise that I wouldn't be an absolute dickhole. <laughs> no, no, I am. I know that I will be the dickhole. Yeah. You can be the dickhole. I'll be the whole. No. Wait. <laughs> we just start. Okay. Well, thank you for this week, Johanna. Thank you. And, uh fantastic job i'm so happy that we decided to give you this episode to yourself because <laughs> i would have been so sad if any of that information was left out thank you and there's so much more you know i think there's so many parts that you just need to entirely understand yeah yeah that's i can't talk anymore <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna sign out and we're gonna get fed yes it was a blast it was so much fun so thank you everyone for listening this week and we have instagram and we have facebook and we have twitter yes and you can find us on all these social media platforms with arsenic soap or, or arsenic, arsenic soap, soap podcast. podcast exactly so thank you everyone and we're gonna see you next week then yeah stay floating oh my god <laughs> Bye. Bye.